بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين طيب الحمد لله سوف Whether we covered in the fiqh of hajj um, Shurut Always a place to start when we do fiqh Conditions of the particular act of worship So the conditions of hajj we did Maybe at the end of the lesson Or in the last week Hopefully if I'm done with everything We'll do a recap session we can just run through everything again Okay um, Spoke about types of hajj so we've got Ifrad, Qiran, and Tamattu, which is recommended for uh, the Hujjaj going from, from here. And then we spoke about last week, we spoke previously before that about menstruation in detail. And last week we spoke about the Mahzuratul Ihram, meaning those things which are forbidden in Ihram, or in a state of Ihram, right? So we went through all of that. There was one issue. And I said I'm going to double check, which was the issue of the burqa, right? So, firstly, the hadith says, لا تنتقب المرأة, meaning, a woman in ihram should not wear niqab. That's what the hadith literally says. So, the, where did the burqa issue come from? It was more the scholars, they would say, and similarly a burqa, right? But what did they mean by that? They did not mean the burqa that's worn here traditionally. What we consider a burqa in Cape Town or in South Africa, which is like a scarf, isn't it so? You, you, you kind of put it over and it covers your upper body, right? And obviously all of your hair. But the face is open. So according to that definition, that is not similar to the, to the niqab. So that is not forbidden for the person or the woman in ihram, right? If you go to the Arab countries, they, their definition of a burqa differs from country to country, right? So if you go on, just go on Google, for example, right? Just do a Google search, burqa in Arabic. If you can type in Arabic, just search burqa and go to images. And you will see the Emirati version has anybody been to Umrah yet? You've never been? Okay. And it's been, right? Correct. I don't know if you've seen women in the haram with this golden uh, thing that they wear on their face. It's like a, like a mask, but it's a solid steel, golden brass thing. Don't you see that in the haram? Those are Emirati women. That's their cultural style of dress. You understand? Some of them would consider that a burqa. Then you've got the Afghanistani burqa, for example, which is this full cover of the face. It's got these holes in it. Like a netting, right? Blue. It's like a light blue. That's considered a burqa to them. That's also not permissible because it's tailor-made for the face. Right? So, going back to what we said last week, if you think, if you remember what we said about for the men, we said anything that's tailor-made for the body is not permissible. Like socks is tailor-made. Hoofs. 
a hood, it's tailor-made for the head, a cap, we say it's not permissible, a turban, kufiyat, it's tailor-made, likewise a shirt, we say the thobe, pants, underpants, it's tailor-made to fit the body, and the head, so it's not permissible, right? And then we said, for the woman, the body, there's nothing, no prohibitions. So the woman can wear anything, right? As long as the aura is covered. But the prohibition was for the gloves and the face. So anything tailor-made for the hands or the face is not permissible. So the niqab is tailor-made for nothing but the face. Hence, it's not permissible. And those burqa's that you find in amongst the Arab uh, you know, cultures, it's tailor-made for the face. So it takes the same ruling. Are, we, are you with me? Likewise, gloves would take the same ruling. It's tailor-made for the hands. But So that's basically clarifying the issue of the burqa, inshallah. Okay. We move on to the ihram. Right? Last week we spoke about forbidden matters in ihram. Today, what are we supposed to do in ihram? What's the process? You know, the sunnahs of ihram and so forth. Taib. Ihram firstly means having the intention of starting the rituals of Hajj and Umrah. That's what it means according to the Arabs. It means that state that you go into, right? Getting yourself ready to start the rituals of Hajj or Umrah. Number one, when the pilgrim wants to enter Ihram, he should change his clothes and do ghusl, like the ghusl done to cleanse oneself of Janabah. So sunnah number one is what? To take a ghusl. It's, a, it's not a fard ghusl. It's a sunnah ghusl. A voluntary ghusl. Okay? The same ghusl that you take for janaba. What does that mean? What does that mean? What do we mean by that statement? In the same way you would take a ghusl if you were, like you were in a state of janaba. This is the same thing. You wash your entire body. Right? But of course the ghusl for janaba is a fard ghusl. This is a sunnah ghusl. So a person goes into ihram and he did not take the ghusl purposefully. Is there anything wrong? There's nothing wrong. We say he's missed out on the woods, yes, but this doesn't, it doesn't affect his hajj or umrah. Okay? His ihram is valid and his hajj and umrah would not be affected. So it's an optional thing, it's a sunnah. Okay? Secondly, he should apply, he should apply, remember we spoke about this, not for females. The males should apply whatever perfume is available, musk, or whatever he has to his head and beard. Okay, in fact, it does not matter if traces of that perfume remain after he enters ihram because of the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha who said, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam wanted to enter ihram, he would perfume himself with the best perfume he could find. So take note of this. You're going for Umrah. You're going for Hajj. You're in a state of Ihram. It's a sacred state that you are in. Wear your best. Be in the best possible state. So the best he could find, the best you have, put it on at that moment. You know, like it's Eid. When it's your wedding day, you put on your best. This is something similar. It's a sacred day. It's a great day. You put on your best. So, she says, Then I would see shining traces of that mask on his head and beard after that. So he took a ghusl, perfumed his body. 
right? Now, whether it's a spray on perfume, whether it's after the oil, whether it's something solid that you rub on yourself, doesn't make a difference. Perfume is perfume, right? Atr is atr. Oud, mask doesn't make a difference. The remnants of that which will remain on your body or your face, you rub it on your beard, you rub it on your face, you rub it on your head, rub it on your chest. What remains after does not harm. This is what she's saying. Meaning, after that, you put your ihram on. You put your ihram on. And we know we said last week, in the state of ihram, no perfuming is allowed. But in this instance, you have perfumed yourself before the state of ihram. After you put the clothes over with the cloths on, the, the smell or the trace, even she, she could see it shining. Which means it wasn't a spray-on thing, it must have been something that he rubbed on. Right? She could see it shining in his beard and in his head. So the effects and the traces or the remnants of the utter does not, there's no problem with that. Understand? Even if it's a day later. So even a day later, you have a good utter or perfume on or mask, you'll still have the smell on you a day later, maybe even two days later. Maybe even three, depending how strong it is. No problem. Right? Because you put it on before you went into the state of ihram. And that's a sunnah. You will get reward for that. Right? You will get reward for that. Number three is, it's mustahab for the one who wants to enter ihram, to trim his mustache, clip his nails, and deal with his pubic hair, the hair in your private parts, and armpit hair. Now again, this could apply for males and females. Because again, for males and females, you're not supposed to be plucking hairs, or cutting hairs, or cutting your nails, once in the state of ihram. Why is it mustahab? Because, number one, we spoke about the sacred state. You want to be clean and pure and as in the best of states when you enter ihram. And number two is, you don't want to be bothering with that afterwards. Whilst you're in the state of ihram. Now you see, oh, I forgot to cut my nails. And it starts to worry you now, but I'm in ihram. And my nails are getting dirty. And people get waswasa. People, shaitan comes and he uses that to distract them. and Right? Okay, just this uh, a note, please. Okay. So again, we take care of this before the time. It's befitting for ihram. It's befitting for your umrah, visiting the, the Kaaba and so forth. And you don't want to be worried with it afterwards. Right? That makes sense. Also, this is part of fitrah. This is part of our fitrah, our natural inclination. When we look at the hadith there, Rasulullah said five things are part of fitrah. Number one is circumcision, removing the pubic hair, trimming the mustache, trimming the nails, and plucking the armpit hairs. This is fitrah meaning it has to be done consistently throughout the life of the Muslim. Those things come, it grows back, you have to remove it once again. It's not allowed to remain on your body for too long. Right? The hadith then at the end says, I think it's hadith of Anas. Yes. He says a time limit was set for us. Which was 40 days. It should, should not be there for more than 40 days, except that you go back, you trim your mustache again, cut your nails again. This is the limit. Which means, to do it before that, obviously, if you feel the need, you do that. Different people obviously are different. But at least within 40 days, that's how it was for them. 
if you feel every week, every second week, every third week, ala kulli hal, it's all good, right? It's all good. But at least before you go into a state of ihram, you take care of this. You take care of this. And also a side point here is, trim the mustache. <coughs> this is your mustache here, right? Not the beard. Okay? The sunnah is to let the beard grow. Okay? The sunnah is to let the beard grow. I have to put this out there. You don't want to be shaving your beard before you go for hajj or for umrah. Because to shave the beard is a sin. Why do I say it's a sin? The hadith of Rasulullah says, let the, grow, let the beard flow and let it grow and trim the mustache. He made a distinction between the two. And in one hadith he said, and be different to the mushrikeen. Be different to the mushrikeen. The mushrikeen were known to shave and to grow their thick mustache very thick. That's what, they, that's what they were known for. So he said, trim it and let the beards grow. And all of the Anbiya alayhi salam were men who had beards. Even the Sahaba, عنهم, all of them were men who had beards. So, my main thing is this. If you're going for Hajj, don't shave it on that day. Don't, you know, go against the commandment of Allah in that moment. You understand? Especially in that moment. Especially in that moment. Because it's, for me, it's even worse. It's, it's, it's the same example I use on Eid. You know, the, for Ramadan, people grow their beards. This is like a thing that I see in Cape Town where youngsters, they grow their beards in Ramadan. It's a Ramadan beard. And then on Eid, they shave the beard. You know, that is like an insult to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's like to show Allah we did this for Ramadan and not for you. And the same with hijab. We wear hijab in Ramadan on Eid, off, and everything's off. You know, on Eid, they, all of the sins come out. And again, if you go back to what I said about Hajj, when I said, the scholars are asked, what's the sign of an accepted Hajj? What's the sign? Only Allah knows, but what is the sign that it's accepted? After Hajj, you've changed. You're a better person, you're a different person, you come closer to Allah. What's the sign of an accepted Ramadan? It's the same, same process. Only Allah knows whether you're Ramadan, you're Qiyamullah, you're Sadaqat, you're Travi, you're... Seeking Qilalatul Qadr, all that you did Ramadan, was it accepted? Only Allah knows. What was your intention? The sign that was accepted is, you changed after Ramadan. The sign that it's not accepted, was highly unlikely it's accepted is that the first day after Ramadan, we go back to our sins. That's a, that's a very bad sign and a bad reflection of our Ramadan. And the same with one's Hajj. So that's what the Ahadith say. The hadith are very explicit about the beard. Let the beards grow, trim the mustache, and even before, this is part of fitrah, to trim the to trim the mustache as well. Number four is doing ghusl when entering ihram is sunnah for both men and women, even women who are bleeding following childbirth or menstruation. Right? So even the women who have nifas or who have the hayd, it's also a sunnah for them to take a ghusl. And then to enter ihram and to use, you know, to cover the private part and so forth. And then to continue. And we've spoken about uh, the menstruation, women on hajj and so forth. Number five, he should enter ihram after offering an obligatory prayer. If it is the time for an obligatory prayer or a nafil prayer, which he should intend as the sunnah prayer following wudu. 
So if it's door time, go back door first, right, in Jama'ah. And after that, you in the ihram and then you go. Right? If not, when you take a ghusl, right? When we take the ghusl, do we have to take wudu as well? Okay, let's say we take a ghusl at 12 o'clock or half past 12 and 1 o'clock is duhr. So we're planning, I'm going to go after my ghusl, I'm going to freshen up, I'm going to go for salah and then we're going to go, right? So let's say I take the sunnah ghusl, do I have to take wudu after that or does that include wudu? It includes wudu. You clean, you clean. Okay. So, I'm thinking of an analogy that I can use now on that statement. You clean, you clean. If I, yes? Ahsanti, that's for a fard wudu. Sorry, what did you say? Fard ghusl. A fard ghusl. You see, cleaning is one thing. Being physically clean, that doesn't mean you're in a state of wudu. A ritual state of purity. You get physical cleanliness, cleanliness, and then you get ritual cleanliness. Right? So if you need to get into a state of ritual cleanliness, which means I'm in a state of purity so that I can make salah, or make tawaf, or touch the Quran. Right? This is either in one of two ways this is done. Which is, how do you get into that state? You take wudu, or you take a ghusl. Right? Take a wudu or a ghusl. But, wudu for salah, what's the ruling? Is it sunnah or fard? It's fard. A sunnah ghusl is a sunnah. That sunnah ghusl cannot take the place of a fard wudu. That sunnah ghusl cannot take the place of a fard wudu. It's not the same, it's not on the same level. A fard ghusl takes the place of a fard wudu. So if you are in the state of Janaba, or a woman, her menstruation is ended, she now needs to take a ghusl. That's a fard ghusl. Once you take that ghusl, you don't need to take wudu. You are already in a state of ritual purity now. Understand? But to take a sunnah ghusl, it's a sunnah, it's like a bath. It does not count as getting yourself into a ritual state of worship. You need to take wudu as well. You need to take wudu as well. Right? And wudu is worship. It's an act of worship. And therefore it has conditions. Conditions, like we spoke about hajj, salah has conditions, wudu has conditions. Part of the conditions of wudu is your niyyah. Wudu has a niyyah. That when you wash those parts, your intention is to take wudu. To get yourself in that state so that you are ready to make salah. But if you jump in the shower, is that niyyah there? You could intend on taking a ghusl, but does it count as a fard? It does not count as a fard. So you have to take a ghusl, a wudu, even if you take it in the shower, it's no problem. Even if your aura is being shown, it doesn't matter. You can take wudu with you being naked even. That's, that doesn't uh, affect the wudu. But the point is, if you are taking a sunnah ghusl, you have to take a fard wudu as well. If you intend to make salah. Right? So basically what this point here means is that if, it's a, if there's a salah coming up, 
you make the salah, then you get into the state of haram, and then you, you, you go on your way. Right? Or you pray two raka'at for wudu. You pray two raka'at for wudu. It's from the sunnahs of wudu that after wudu you pray two raka'at. Right? That's a sunnah. At every time you take wudu, you make two raka'at for the wudu. That's a sunnah of the Prophet. Right? Was it the hadith of Bilal? Radiallahu anhu, wherein uh, the Prophet said that he heard his footsteps in Jannah. What is it that he's doing? He said, after every wudu, after every wudu I make two rakats. And since that moment, it became part of the Sunnah to do this. Right? So if you take wudu, pray two rakat. Use that opportunity to fulfill, fulfill the Sunnah. If you don't usually do it, he has a good opportunity to start doing it, or at least to do it in this case. So you pray your two rakat, and you put on your ihram and you go. But there is no specific nafil prayer for entering ihram. There is no sunnahs for ihram. This is a misconception among some people where they say if you put on the ihram, you must make two rakat of salah. There is no two rakat for ihram because this has not been narrated from Rasulullah sallallahu or the Sahaba. Understand? So if you are going to make that salah, it's either fard or make a two that is for wudu, and then you get into your haram and you go. Right? But specifically for, for ihram, there is no two rakats of, of ihram. Point number six is, Obviously, women who are menstruating or bleeding for in childbirth, you should not pray. This is, of course, known. And number seven is, he should enter ihram after he finishes the prayer or after boarding his means of transportation. He should enter ihram before he leaves the miqat for Makkah. That's again, we discussed the issue of the miqat. You must be in your state of ihram before you leave the miqat. To go back to what we said, we said, if you want to take your ghusr in the hotel, it's easier, do that. Right? So you finish it up. Your hustle is done. Even if you put the, the clothing on of the ihram at the hotel, we can accept that. But don't make your niyah for, for ihram yet. So let's say, for example, we know that the, 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 the clothing for ihram we're going to do now is the two garments for the men, right? Technically, what you could do is you could have a pants underneath. Put underpants on. Or a vest on if you wanted because you are not yet in the state of ihram that only applies at the miqat so again usually this you should discuss with the agent first what is uh, what are we going to do or your group leader you know whoever you with on hajj what's the procedure right are we stopping at the miqat are we making salah there what's the procedure like so you know this is what I can do if they say look we're just going to stop over for 5 minutes or 10 minutes then you know, look, I'm going to get done at the hotel. I'm ready. When I get there, as we're about to leave, as you board the bus, this is now when you, you, stay, you, you say everything that you need to say, which we, which we are going to get to. Right? So as you are leaving, this is when you start to say, as you are leaving from the Miqat. So there's nothing specifically to do at the Miqat? You see, ideally, you okay, go you to the Miqat. Because you spoke about doing the puzzle and... Correct. That's actually what should. That's how the Prophet did it. But as I said, that can be a bit difficult because you're coming with your luggage. You got a big group to consider. 
like I said, the agent tells you, look, we're only going to be there for five minutes or for 20 minutes, and you know that's not going to be enough time, then rather do it at the hotel and be safe. We don't want to keep up a busload of people and so forth. There's no salah to be made at the miqat. There's a masjid there. So again, if you get there and it's found salah time, pray, right? Then you make salah with the jama'ah and so forth. But there's no need to enter the mosque and make salah there. It's not a necessity. It's no, there's no special virtue to that. You understand? The main issue at the miqat is don't pass the miqat unless you are in your state of ihram. Right? That's the most important thing. If you can get dressed there, that's even better. Right? But I would say at least make the intention from there. So even if you're coming from the hotel to the miqat, let's say it's about the 15-minute drive. In that time, as I said, you can have normal clothing on. Or you can have your two cloths over you, but underneath you have other clothing on. Because you are not yet in a state of ihram. Understand? Once you're passing or about to leave the miqat, then you're going to your state of ihram. Tayyip. Tayyip. The sunnah is for the pilgrim performing hajj or umrah to enter ihram wearing a rida and an izar. A rida and an izar. Two garments. Your rida is your upper garment and your izar is the waist wrapper, the lower garment. And this comes in a hadith where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he said that he should not wear trousers. Uh, we, we dealt with all of this. Each of you should enter ihram wearing an izar and a rida. That's it. So he said it in the hadith, you should only be wearing an izar and, an and a rida, which is the upper and the lower garment. This was explained as a wrapper, and some scholars explain it as being that which covers the lower body. The rida is that which covers the upper body. Both of them are not tailored. Again, this is what we spoke about. It was said that the izar is that which is worn below the shoulders, on the lower part of the body, and the rida is that which is worn over the shoulders and back. And it was said that the izar is that which covers the lower part of the body and is not tailored. All of these views are sound. Tayyib. Now, when you go into ihram, over the shoulders and the back, that's generally how you wear the, the upper cloth. Maybe one week you can bring the cloths and do a, a little bit of demonstration. Okay? It's not the sunnah to put your shoulder out. Your right shoulder. That's for tawaf only. Okay? So don't open the shoulder yet and sit like this the whole way. Cover yourself. Cover your body. Keep yourself covered with the, with the cloths. Only for the ihram will we open up the shoulder for the men. Okay? What did I say? For the ihram? For the tawaf, sorry. It's also not stipulated that the ihram garment should be white. It's not a, it's not a, not a condition. It's not a condition, right? But it's better that it's white. It's better that it's white. Number one, that's the custom. If you go in a green ihram, people will look at you strangely and think, what is this person doing? And if you're going to stand out, it can be problematic. Because there is a hadith with the Prophet forbade us from wearing libas al-shuhra, clothing that makes you stand out. In general terms, now, not only in, on hajj umrah. Any clothing that makes a person look odd, the Prophet says it's not permissible. So in your culture, in our tradition and culture over here, if you think of anything that makes you look strange, makes a person, everyone looks at this person like, what is this person wearing? That's not permissible. Just because it brings attention and it creates fitna. People talk, 
and a Muslim is not supposed to be a strange or odd-looking person. Do you understand? So for those reasons, the Prophet forbade this. So if you could argue that if you wore a crazy color ihram, might fall into this, maybe it, maybe it doesn't fall into that either. Allah knows best. It's mustahab, which means highly recommended for the ihrams to be clean when you start off nice, fresh, clean, preferably new ihram. If it's not new, that's also fine. Somebody lent you a ihram, you're wearing your father's ihram. People, you know, no problem. Because we got it as mustahab to be clean in body, so by the same token, his garment should be clean like one who is attending Jumu'ah prayers. You took a ghusl, you're fresh. Make sure your clothing is also clean and fresh. For the males and females, put on a new abaya, put on, you know, something clean and fresh. Don't wear yesterday's clothing. The same for Jumu'ah. For Jumu'ah, you should change. Those who are attending the Jumu'ah Salah, Supposed to take a ghusl. And secondly, they should change their clothing. Don't wear yesterday's underwear, yesterday's socks, or yesterday's clothing. Wear new clothing for Jumu'ah. When I say new, I don't mean brand spanking new. I mean clean clothes. Because for the same for, uh, for Hajj. It is best for them to be white. Because the Prophet wasallam said, the best of your garments are those which are white. So the best thobes for men is the white thobe. That's hadith. So dress your living in them and shroud your dead in them. So for men, the best garments are, are white. Right? And again, that doesn't mean you must wear white jeans and white socks and white shoes and white shirt. and That might make you look odd. Right? White is good, preferred, especially like this, the thobe and so forth. That is the best of your clothing. As for the female pilgrim, it's permissible for her to enter a haram in whatever clothes she wants black or green or otherwise but she should be aware of resembling men in their garments we obviously to resemble men in your clothing is also not permissible in a haram or outside right a woman this is like a woman a man this is like a man however she does not have the right to wear the niqab as we explained or gloves when in a haram rather she should cover her face and hands with something other than the niqab and gloves because the Prophet ﷺ forbade the woman in ihram to wear the niqab and the gloves. We've spoken about this. As what the common folk do of singling out green or black for women to wear in ihram and not other colors, there's no basis for that. Okay? So I think this is more maybe an Arab culture. Our culture again is different. The women from here, they wear white. And they feel that's better. Whichever one you choose, it's all fine. If you wear black, no problem. If you wear white, no problem. If you wear green, no, if you wear mixed color, no problem. You decide what you want to wear. Wear something comfortable, something cool, something that your aura is covered, and so forth. That's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. The colors don't really... It's not going to affect your hajj. It's not going to affect your hajj. Okay? So where are we now? We've taken the ghusl, we've cleansed ourselves physically... We put on the ihram now, the garments. We are now at the miqat. We are now where? At the miqat. Whether you've done all this in the hotel or not, but we are now at this point, we are at the miqat. As we are getting onto our transportation, as we are getting onto our bus, it's probably a bus. You get on the bus, then if you are doing tamattu', you should say, Labbaik Allahumma bi'umratin. 
That is on page three. La baik Allahumma bi umratin. Because as you are passing the miqat, your intention is umrah. Right? The hajj comes later on. Hajj comes later on. It's a separate ritual. Right? So you say la baik Allahumma bi umratin. Which means la baik means here I am. I'm answering your call. La baik. Ya am O Allah for Umrah. Simple. Right? Try to say the Arabic. If you are a person who cannot say Arabic at all, say the English. Okay? But otherwise, try your best to say the Arabic. With a translation, with the meaning there, you know what you are saying. This is of vital importance. You know what you are saying. Okay? If you are doing Quran, it should not be Quran, it should be Quran, right? It should say, La baik Allahumma bi hajjatin wa umratin. Because it's one ritual. La baik, oh Allah, ya I am for Hajj and Umrah. And if he's doing ifrad, it's Hajj only. You say La baik, Allahumma Hajjan. Ya I am, oh Allah, for Hajj only. Right? He's not doing Umrah, he's only going for Hajj. These are part of the rituals of Hajj. This, these statements here. Right? Some ulama say this is the niyyah for Hajj or Umrah. Some ulama regard this as a, as a niyyah. Other ulama say it's not a niyyah. It's a ritual. It's just part of what you, what you do on hajj. Like the talbiyah you recite, this is part of what you recite on hajj and umrah. Okay? Why do we mention this? Because the issue of the niyyah, the mahalun niyyah al-qulub, the place of the niyyah is the heart. The place of your niyyah is your heart. Right? And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said in the hadith, Actions are driven by their intentions. And each person will get what he intended. What you intend is in your heart. It's not what you utter. It's not what you utter. And we can prove this. I could stand in the musalla and say, Nawaitu salli qadda salatuthur arba'a raka'atin lillahi ta'ala. Uh, which literally means I intend to make dhur, fard, salah, four raka'at for the sake of Allah. But my intention in my heart is what? Is to impress this person beside me. Or my intention in my heart was to show people I'm in the masjid. Or my intention in my heart was something else, something else, something else. The niyyah doesn't prove you are being sincere. To say it doesn't prove anything. In fact, sometimes it's a contradiction. You are saying something, but your heart is elsewhere. So this is why scholars say the niyyah is in the heart. That's point number one. Point number two is Rasulullah never uttered a niyyah for any act of worship. Nor did the Sahaba. Any of them. So where does Nawaitu Salli Fardu Salatul come from? Where does Nawaitu Sawmagadin come from? It was made up by somebody along the way. It's not from the Sunnah of the Prophet. If you feel this is something strange, my challenge to you is go, go do research. Go to the Sheikh who said you must do it and ask him, show me a hadith. Just one hadith. Even if it's a weak hadith. But just show me a hadith if the Prophet said you must say it or he said it. Or a Sahabi. This is the challenge. Or go to the book where you learnt it from and look at the bottom of the page if there's, a, if there's a, a reference. Or in the text, if there's a reference, wherever they put their references, find the reference 
and you can prove me wrong. Understand? But it's not from the Sunnah to say the niyyah ever. Not for salah, not for wudu, not for fasting, not for any act of worship. And this is where the difference of on this comes. Some said this is the only time you say the niyyah. See? Only time because of, because of these words. It's narrated. These words are narrated. So we don't neglect it because it's from the hadith. And others said it's not even a niyyah. It's just part of the rituals of Hajj and Umrah. Like, like the Nabaik. So at the end of the day, whether you consider it a niyyah or not, what's important is you say it. Because the Prophet said you must say it. Understand? As for the rest of the ibadat, cut those niyas out. Because you know what? It just makes your life difficult, takes up time, you're more focused on the way to Salifah. The sunnah is to stand there, focus, Allah Akbar, and you say, and you start. You know, even teaching children, takes the children two weeks to learn the way to Salifah. You could have taught the child an eye of Quran, you could have taught him an authentic hadith, you could have taught him something proper. This unnecessary taklif, making things difficult upon people, which should not have been in the first place. You understand? So cut all of that out. Um, learn to focus. Meaning, I'm here. Why am I standing here? I'm sta- Why do you wake up in the morning? For suhoor. What's your intention? It's too fast. That's already your niyyah is made. The fact that you put your alarm on for an hour before fajr, for example, your niyyah is already being made the night before. I need to wake up because I'm going too fast. That is already your niyyah. To say the niyyah in tarawih, nawai to sawma ghadin, an adain, etc. There's no need for that. There's absolutely no need for that. And it's not from the sunnah to do it. Right? Tayyib. After you say your, your labayk Allahumma hajj, or Allahumma hajj, or these different wordings, don't worry. But if you use one wording, that's perfect. Right? Depending on which hajj you're going to do, labayk Allahumma umrah wa hajj. Then you should say, Allahumma hijjatan la riya'a fiha wa la sum'ah. Oh Allah, this hajj, this is a pilgrimage in where there is no showing off or seeking reputation. This is what the Prophet also said before he started the journey. To emphasize, this is a dua now. Allahumma means, oh Allah, ya Allah. Make this a hajj, basically. That there is no riya showing off. We've spoken about the importance of ikhlas and sincerity. And no sum'ah. What is sum'ah? Can you think of a difference? Sum'ah and riya. The word riya comes from the word ra'a, which means to see. The word sum'ah comes from the word Sami'a, which means to hear. So there's a slight difference. Both of them are, are similar in their ruling. What's the difference? Riyah is when you show off in front of people in your worship. Sum'a is when you do things to be heard about. People can talk about you. You know, you do something so that tomorrow someone can say, yeah, you know what, that guy did, Marshall, that sheikh there on that hajj was like this. That was his intent. If his intention wasn't there and people do it, no problem. But if he specifically did it for that intention, to be heard about and seeking a reputation. People can talk about him. This is what we call sum'ah. That's not ikhlas. The same with riyah. To show up in front of people is not ikhlas. 
and we spoke about the phones and watched, you know, don't stand for the Kaaba like this and act as if you're making dua or act as if people stand and they make salah as, they make as if they're making salah for the photos. This should not be done. That salah is worship. It should be for the sake of Allah only. It's not for pictures. It's not for showing off. Riya and Sum'ah is major sins. It's not small. It's major sins. And no act of worship that contains Riya or Sum'ah is accepted. It's rejected straight away. Straight away it's rejected. Right? So if your hajj has Riya and Sum'ah in it, it could be a null and void hajj. So the most important thing for any act of worship is your intention. Your niyyah is for the sake of Allah. This is why I'm going. We'll be doing all of this preparation for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tayyip. Um, then he should decide the talbiyah as the Prophet sallallahu did. Now we're on our journey. You're on the bus, you're moving. Just past the miqat and you pass the miqat. Now is the time that we start the talbiyah. Right? Jabir radiallahu anhu, he said, when this happened, the Prophet went up on a hill and ahalla bit tawheed. He declared the statement of tawheed, which is the talbiyah. The talbiyah is all about your tawheed for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are answering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is a lamb missing in this one here? It says, Baik Allah. There should be a lamb in front of that. Um, in front of the on the right hand side right so it's labbaik allahumma labbaik labbaik la sharika laka labbaik inna alhamda wal ni'mata laka wal mulk la sharika lak most of us we probably know it already we hear it every year hajj time it's playing on the radio it's playing on tv and you hear you know right so we most of us we know it already alhamdulillah labbaik allahumma labbaik ya i am allah ya i am i'm responding to your invite Responding to your call, Allah, come. Here I am, oh Allah, you have no partner. Here I am. Emphasizing this point, emphasizing the importance that I've come, Ya Allah, for your sake. You have no partner, it's for your sake alone. Indeed, all praises and bounties and blessings and mulk which is your sovereignty or kingdom or dominion belongs to you all of this belongs to you all praises is unto Allah perfect praises due to Allah only like we say alhamdulillah ni'mata, we acknowledge that all favors bounties blessings they come from Allah and this entire world and the heavens and whatever it contains, the kingdom, the dominion, it belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we emphasize the greatness of Allah. When we say this, we praise Him and we remember His greatness. La sharika lak, you have no partner. As you can see, this is the words of Tawheed. You are emphasizing the oneness of Allah, the uniqueness of Allah, the divinity of Allah. All of this is for you and we have come for your sake alone. The words of Tawheed. And this should be your reminder throughout the journey as you go on and so forth. The Prophet also included sometimes Labbaika ilaha al-haq labbaik. So sometimes you can use that, that wording. Labbaika ilaha al-haq labbaik. Which means, Ya I am, O ilah, deity, O God of truth. Al-haq. 
Labbaikia, I am. Right? And sometimes Abdullah ibn Umar, which was the son of Umar, ibn al-Khattab, he used to add to the Talbiya the words, Labbaik, Labbaik wa Sa'daik, wal khayru biyadaik, Labbaik, wal raghba'u ilayk, wal amal. So some, most of the times you use the first one. That's the main one. Labbaik, Allahumma, Labbaik, Labbaik. And sometimes you, you divert to the second one, sometimes to the third one. Right? But most of the time, that's the main one. Okay? Labbaik, Labbaik, wa Sa'daik, Ya I am, Ya I am. وَسَعْدَيْكَ and blessed by you وَالْخَيْرُ بِيَدَيْكَ and all good is in your hands لَبَّيْكَ وَالْرَغْبَاءُ إِلَيْكَ وَالْعَمَلِ Desire and action are directed towards you Again, it's all words of Tawheed It's a reminder if you know what you are saying that رَغْبَاء all desire, all amal deeds and actions directed to you We seek what we want from Allah We do it for the sake of Allah and, and so forth Right, and I think in either Sheikh Yasin or Sheikh Das class, this will be discussed. This will be probably discussed in more detail, because there's a lot more detail behind the meaning of the of the talbiya. It is preferable for men to utter that, or for the pilgrim, should I say, after he gets up on his mount or onto or into his vehicle, and so on, because the Prophet only said the talbiya when he got on his mount and and it set out with him from the miqat to begin the journey. So as I said, you don't say this at the miqat. Get in the bus as you are leaving. Now you start the talbiya. This is now when you're on your journey. This is when the talbiya starts. Men should raise their voices when saying this. But a woman should recite in such a manner that those who are beside her can hear it unless there's a man beside her who is not one of the mahrams, in which case she should recite it silently. Right? Firstly, the voice of the woman is not an aura. Your voice is not aura. To speak to me or speak to another man, for example, there's no aura there. But obviously, you don't speak in a in a, a manner that's flirtatious or a manner that might instill fitna in, into the heart of the male. That becomes impermissible. So to sing and to recite, you never know, you know what what this person could be thinking. Ideally, you don't obviously want to be sitting next to an unmahram, but otherwise you can say it audibly. So you and your husband, you can say it nicely, audibly to yourself. Um, or softly you, you can choose If you feel it's best to say it softly Say it softly And the same with the men So the sunnah is to raise the men To raise the voice Right Jibdil came to me The Prophet said And told me to tell my companions And those who are with me To raise their voices When reciting the talbiyah Sunnah And the Prophet also said The best of hajj is that Which voices are raised in the talbiyah And the blood of the sacrificial animal flows so the sunnah is to raise the voice. This doesn't mean you're on a four-hour journey that you're screaming from... Raise the voice, maybe at times a bit louder, at times a bit softer, and so forth. But the sunnah is from Medina all the way to Makkah is to recite the talbiyah. Okay, if you take a break, there's no harm, no problem. You take a nap, no problem. You decide you want to read Quran, maybe, no problem. You want to make some other adhkar in between, no problem. But make the talbiya predominant over, over the rest. Because that's now specific sunnah for that journey. For whilst you're in that state of ihram. You should continue the talbiya until they reach Makkah. When they are close to Makkah, they should do ghusl before entering it as the Prophet ﷺ did. And I think I mentioned this before. This, however, is not possible in today's time. That's my own little addition there. Because I'm just thinking it's not practical. Right? Meaning... 
process time was different. They could stop anywhere, set up camp somewhere, you know, find water, take a whistle. Today it's not like that. Right? Today you gotta find a proper place to take a whistle. You need to have the facilities to take a whistle. So where are you going to stop outside of Makkah and take a whistle? It's not practical, it's almost impossible. Right? Unless you had a relative living there, something along those lines. But even then your bus is not going to stop there and wait for you. Right? So again, the niya is there that it, if it was possible, we would have done it. You might get reward for that. But otherwise, we enter Makkah. And this is also proof that you can take a shower instead of ihram. This is also proof for this. Otherwise, we're obviously not going to fulfill that. We just go straight to our location. Now the next point is, if the person who's entering ihram fears some obstacle that may prevent him from, from completing his pilgrimage, he should stipulate a condition when entering ihram. So what happened was is, there was a sahabi, sahabiya, female, Duba'a bint al-Zubayr, anha. She wanted to go for hajj, but she was not well. And the fear was is, you see, if you're going to ihram, and you're on your way, you have to complete that journey now. You can't just stop and come going home. You've taken on this, this journey. You have to complete it. And if you don't, you have to offer a ransom. Understand? So her fear was, look, what do I do in my case? I'm not well. I, I highly doubt I might reach, but I really want to go. And so the Rasulullah basically said to her, you stipulate a condition. And that condition is, Allahumma mahalli haytu habastani. Oh Allah, I will finish my ihram at any place where you stop me. Which means, if I get to a point where I can't go any further, that's where I come out of ihram. It's conditioned now. I made it conditioned before the time. Right? And then he comes out of ihram, or she comes out of ihram, and there's no ransom or no punishment to be paid. Are you with me? But this is only for a person who has the fear that they're not going to make it. It's only for such a person. If you genuinely worry that, look, I know there's an obstacle in the, in the road that might prevent me. You understand? Then this is something that you say. It's not for the any day pilgrim, basically. If you have any fear, this is what you could decide. So there, if you want to act upon it. If not, you don't have to do it. Put it that way. So, again, as students, we used to go for hajj. But many of our hajjs was illegal. Meaning we did not have a hajj visa. Right? Even though we were in the country, those in the country need to apply for hajj, get accredited the same like here. And you get a special pass to say you are accredited to go for hajj. And you was a certain hajj group. And then you get the illegals in the country who just go to Makkah. And find a way into Makkah. So, the students who were not... Am I late? The students who were not legal, like myself and Sheikh Yassi, we had to find our own way in, right? If, it, if I mean, sometimes we manage to go legally, some, most of the time it's not the case, right? And this is an option, because you know there might be a checkpoint on the road where they stop you, where's your hazard? Go home. Or they lock you up. Or there's many other punishments that they come up with. Every year it gets worse. Um, they can deport you, many things, right? Uh, so this is an option in a case like that. There's fear. There's maybe a time of war. Maybe a time of virus. If it happens that 
you there already, you passed the Miqat, and for some reason they said, look here, if, if you come with such and such a passport, to such, you might be turned back. This is something to recite. Allah Alam, I don't think it would happen like that, but just as an example. Right? Just as an example. Um, <coughs> the last paragraph, the muhrim, the person who is in the haram, should decide to tell a great deal, especially when circumstances and times change. So this is when you need to exert yourself even more. Like when you're going up the hill, for example, you, you exert the talbiyah. If you're going down, you exert the talbiyah. Maybe a bit more, raise the voice a bit more. Right? And when night comes in, when the morning comes in, this is the time to exert yourself as well. The talbiyah is prescribed in Umrah from the moment one enters Ihram until one starts Tawaf. So those doing Tawatu, when you enter Ihram, talbiyah starts as you're on your journey, as we said, until you get to the Mataf. You're going to start the Tawaf, now you start the talbiyah. For the Haji, it's from the moment you enter Ihram for Hajj, until you stone Jamratul Aqaba on the day of Eid. Right? That will become clear in the weeks when we come. What is Jamratul Aqaba? When does it happen? Etc. But that's when you stop the Talbiyah for Hajj. So you will have your Talbiyah for Umrah. When you start Hajj, you will have your Talbiyah once again. Right? The Sunnah for the one who goes to Mecca for Hajj or Umrah is to start first of all with the Masjid Al-Haram and do Tawaf before he goes to any other place. Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi said, the first, actually Aisha said, the first thing the Prophet did when he came to Mecca was to do wudu, then do tawaf. So what does this mean? This means that when you get to Mecca, for Umrah for example, the Sunnah is to go straight to the Kaaba and do your tawaf. And say, you do your Umrah. That's the Sunnah. It's not to go to the hotel room and to do a lot of things there. Right? The Sunnah is to go immediately. Again, this will not be possible because you have a group, you have luggage to take care of, you can't just leave your luggage with others. So you have to do that. This is now out of your hands. So you have to do it this way, no problem. You go, you offload, and as soon as you can go, you go. Right? If you have done Umrah before, for example, and you know you can do it by yourself, do it by yourself and you don't have to wait. Right? Or if you can maybe move in a smaller group, uh, because the pre-groups take long and there's a lot of procedures and a lot of stuff that they do in between that's unnecessary and it takes a long time if it's possible, if it's not possible then go with the group right? but the sunnah is generally to go to the Kaaba initially and to get done but if this is not possible like we said, or if you're extremely tired they say you're not feeling well or you're oldish, or you're just not well, you're just feeling tired, it's permissible to go and rest. It's permissible to go and take a nap. If that's what you feel you need to fulfill the Umrah. That, does, that doesn't mean I'm saying you must exert yourself and kill yourself, and it's permissible. Right? And there's the fact that at the end there, just to clarify that over there. Are, you, are there any questions on the Ihram, and basically the approach towards Mecca? Take the uh, risk before you go to keep your ihram on everything. You must keep your ihram on. Now look, you can shower, as we said. It's permissible to take a shower. As we showed the hadith is in Muslim way. Uh, before the Prophet entered Makkah, he took a ghusl. So if you wanted to, you could. It's not a problem to jump in the shower and to take a ghusl. Just make sure you're not using perfumed products. And you don't re-perfume your body. It's not permissible now. Right? 
So, remember now, let's say you take a shower. You come out before you put on your garments. Can you put on perfume? No, you're in a state of ihram. It's not so much the cloth. It's a ritual state. You understand? So you cannot put on that perfume again. But it's permissible to take a shower to cool off and so forth and then go. Even if you change the ihram, if you put on different cloths, that's also permissible. It's also permissible. Right? There's no prohibition in that. Right? Um, so if it's a need, no problem. If you feel you want to go and you're fresh enough to get done, get done, that's better. But if you feel you need to read or eat something or drink something or shower or whatever the case may be, then do that and then go down and you, you do your umrah and so forth. Any other questions? So next week we are now in Mecca, right? We did a bit of a build up getting there. Next week we'll deal with the tawaf. Sa'i, basically the description of your Umrah and then we'll start the days of Hajj after that and we'll end up for that inshallah wa ala masallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik shadu ala ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayka